Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. Hey everybody, uh, thanks for tuning into today's episode of Coffee, Cows, and Crops. Uh, in this episode, I'm going to be finishing up the conversation that I started with Karen Lindquist here last episode. Uh, we're going to be discussing some uh, winter management projects uh, and techniques that you can use uh, through this winter and into next spring uh, and next summer to help make sure that your perennial pasture recovers from this drought and uh, just some management techniques to help out with uh, resilience and that sort of stuff. So yeah, without further ado, we'll get right into the episode. So according to some of the research we've done at PCBFA, like we've done a bunch of pasture rejuvenation research and that sort of thing, Um, but bale grazing is one of the fastest ways to improve uh, soil moisture, pasture health, improve your pasture, all of that sort of stuff, because you leave a bunch of litter behind, which holds on to your moisture and provides carbon for your microbes and all of that good stuff. So um, is there anything that you would suggest people keep in mind when they're feeding on pasture over the winter? Yeah, there's, there's quite a few things. So, but um, one thing to note is about, about litter. Like, Litter is, is, is darn good. So it does, it's really good for soil protection. It's, it protects the soil. Um, but when it comes to uh, holding on water, being the sponge, you know, to hold on the water, it's actually that soil organic matter below that litter, that below that litter layer that helps with most because that's, that's where the roots come in because then there's those roots that have died and have sloughed off and the soil biology break down and turn into the organic material, the organic layer in the soil, that's a sponge. That's a sponge that, that keeps the, the, retains that water. So, and as I mentioned before, we need those deep roots and not, not, the, not the shallow ones because the shallow ones are, um, as one of the scientists have said, that it's the... Those kind of pastures are not really resilient to things like the climate change, that kind of stuff. So, so anyway, when it comes to bale grazing, um, be mindful of where you're setting the bales. So basically, good good rule of thumb kind of thing is to put them in areas where you know they will be needing more litter cover than others. So if there's other, so there's some areas that are having, you know, they're pretty good. You can rake up a bit of litter. You got a bit in your hand. A little bit, like a bit bigger than than with the palm of your hand. That's that's good. If you're, but if it's less than that, that's that's where you're gonna have to be putting out some bales in order to be putting some residue out there and to get those animals to be eaten on there. So with with bale grazing, uh, the thing is, is you still have to make sure those those cows are cleaning up as much as possible, but you're still leaving enough residue behind in order to make a difference. So I know there's there's a number of cases where mono residue left behind had some people confused about why so much it's it's suffocating the plants and nothing is growing the following year. People are impatient, right? <laughs> yeah. They want things to happen the next year. Oh, yeah. things are getting all of a sudden because you know they, they hear about bear grazing and they think, 
you know, oh, we're going to put these bales out. Oh, the next year there's going to be a this beautiful lush green pasture, and then they and then they mark it as a failure. Then they then they don't see that because they don't quite understand that it takes time. That's how nature dies. It just we're not like human. We think need things now, right? You need <laughs> <laughs> you yes. need to be patient. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so the thing, yeah, patience is a virtue. So it takes a couple of years for things to start showing up. And I was talking to some people at, at the um, field day yesterday about about that, and, and I asked them how long did it take for the to really see where the biggest regrowth. Because they said that you know where they bale grazed was like where it was like the most greenest, it was the highest amount, that kind of thing. And they said, it, and then and I asked them how long it took, and it was it was a couple of years. It was a couple of years before they really started seeing things things showing up. So. Mm-hmm. And then it takes a couple more after that where they see the best productivities in the, is in that bale grazed pasture. So, so it's that. So cleaning, letting, getting those animals to, to clean up. So, um, and the other, on the other part of the coin is it's not just where you're going to be pre- putting the bales, but about the bales themselves. So make sure you feed test those bales. Feed testing is so important. At least you know you're not you're not guessing what kind of quality it is. Um, when you feed test, get get a wet chemistry analysis, not an NIR. That's the uh, near infrared. Um, that's not as accurate as a wet chemistry. And get the macro minerals. You can do micro minerals too. So macros are calcium, phosphorus, um, sulfur, potassium, and the micros are iron, cobalt. Uh, I don't know if they do selenium and uh, zinc, that kind of thing. So those are the micro minerals. Um, and that way you can know what kind of minerals in there, what, what's your energy content, what's your protein content of those bales. And that way you can match the nutrient requirements of your cows. Mm-hmm. So when you, when, and of course, when you know what kind of cows you're putting out there, then you're not going to be ending up with a bit of a train wreck or having to... Um, deal with some cattle, like some growing, growing heifers, growing steers, or you got cows with calves on them, which have pretty high nutrient, nutrient um, requirements. And that means that you have to be putting on supplementation on top of bale grazing. So, so that way it's just, just, and it's a bit less work, a bit less work to, <laughs> to really know what, what you're doing. So, yeah. Um, I think the other thing is bale spacing kind of is important. Um, it's more in the context of not where you're putting the bales, but how how your dominant cows are going to be pushing out some of the weaker ones. So can't have them. No, I'm not. No, I'm not quite sure what the what the requirements are. Sorry about that. What the what the adequate bale spacing is, but but you get it. But keep in mind that dominant cows are are. Yatches. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very, very greedy, very hoggish type type animal. So if they're, you know, if, you know, when, when they're hogging some bales and they're pushing up the other cows, same as swath grazing can be the, the same thing. Then, you know, you get the bale spacing enough so that, you know, everybody's getting, you know, and, and they're not putting on enough bales too where, where, uh, you know, they're, they're everybody's getting their fair share kind of thing. So that's, that's important. Um, I think the other thing is that nutrient analysis, going back to nutrient analysis, 
um, will also depend on what kind of mineral you're going to be feeding. So like grass, grass hay is a, is lower in, in calcium than alfalfa hay, so you might have to be supplementing with some so calcium, um, calcium phosphorus, like a two to one mineral, that kind of thing. Um, so like a cereal mineral, well you need like a little more than that, or more higher calcium because because cereals are just they're they're, they're not great in the in the calcium world. So <laughs> yeah. Um, and the other thing is that when you're bale grazing, make sure you're planning out your your uh, fencing before it freezes because I think it's more fun to put half the pound out post in a frozen ground in the middle of winter. <laughs> yeah, that turns and, into a big project yes, really quick. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, it's just a bit of a pain in the butt, so make sure you're planning out you know, based on the size of the bales because not all bales are... Thousand pounds, you get some fifteen hundred pound bales, and that way you can know how many how many uh, cows you can feed per bale. Because fifteen hundred pound cow dry matter is thirty pounds, about thirty pounds um, pounds per day is how much she eats. So that's in dry matter, by the way, not mm-hmm. not as bad. Um, and that way you kind of figure out okay, how many this this many cows you know we're going to be feeding this many days. Usually it's about three days. Before moving, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, if it's pre-planning, putting those bales out before before the snow flies, putting the, the planning out, putting those those uh, wires out, and the fence posts out is is important. So mm-hmm. I think that's pretty much the most important stuff for bale grazing. Awesome. All right. Um, so now we're kind of talking about bale grazing as a long-term sort of improvement strategy. Um, so also in the long term, what other kind of practices can make pastures more drought resilient? Yeah, so when going to talking about pastures now, like we're coming we're kind of switching from winter back into summertime. Mm-hmm. Um more resilient to drought. It is going to be a combination of managing so that one isn't afraid to waste grass. Now I know Jim Garrish, he's he's always Kind of, it's kind of humorous where when he's teaching in in his uh, in his classes there where where it's it's the um, wasting grass and all <laughs> and he says put up your hand and say I shall not be afraid to waste grass <laughs> I think that's pretty awesome so yeah um so that's that's one thing because you know we're taught by our old, you know our, our our um, people before us, and I know I'm. My dad was my grandpa, and and so that. So I certainly can relate. You know, it's it's not like I'm telling you that these sort of things. So I know that because um, when we grazed pastures, we were always grazing, I have to say. So and you know, dad was always the of the mindset. Oh, we got to push the animals a little bit more so we don't waste the grass. But but it's not not a bad thing to to have a bit of bit of stuff left behind. So. Um, so it's a combination of the managing and managing in a way where you're tightening up your rotation. So, um, I know it's a bit more labor, but it's, it, in the long run, it actually is, is it better. And of course you can train cows. So you can just go out there. Cows know when you're out there when you lift up the fence or when you open up the fence, however you do it, they're, they're like, Hey, we got new pasture. Let's go. 
<laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, when you, so when the wasting, you know, in the context of wasting grass, it's just, the thing is, and I know it's hard to judge how much, how much you leave, you, you leave versus it, versus you take, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit here. Um, it's just, don't take off so much, because when you're trying to be resilient to drought, we talked about this earlier, um, leaving that litter behind, and you talked about this too, Joanna, we, we found that having that litter, the left litter, you when you dug underneath, you found that the soil was nice and cool. Mm -hmm. That's important, because when you have nice, cool soil that isn't burning up, um, those soil microbes are happy because they're operating at, a, at kind of like a room temperature, kind of a little bit, teeny bit lower maybe. And they're, they're happy because that, that's where they like to, like to, like to be uh, active and, and reproduce and eat and all that, all that kind of stuff. So, so things of utilizing cross fencing as much as possible is important rather than just toss them out to pasture for the summer and get them in the fall. Now, Greg Judy, he calls this uh, Columbus salad raising where you, Put them out in the summer or spring, and you discover them in the fall. It's so, <laughs> <laughs> literally go. what he called it. So it's um, and it, so when you managing the managing is going to be um, a matter of digging out your pencil, paper, and calculator, and doing some math on what your stocking rate is based on what your animal weights are. So stocking rate is one thing. I mean, stocking rate everybody does that with with how many, knowing how many animals out there. Now um, there's another Part where I talked about earlier is about stock density. You know, stock density is a little bit different, where it's how much animal weight you can put on pasture at a, at a certain period of time. So it's like you can have, uh, I talked to er, earlier about how someone like Neil Dennis put on like 800,000 pounds of animal, animal weight per, per acre. That, that's a lot. But he didn't put it out there for, for very long. The animals were maybe out there for maybe a couple hours. That's that's a lot of weight, but then there's animals that are trampling a lot, they're pooping a lot, they're eating a bit, and then they're moving on, right? Because their animals are going to be taken off maybe a third, they're not going to be taking a whole bunch, and they're going to be trampling down the rest, and, and, and um, their dung is going to be on, on that, that stuff that they're going to be trampling before they move on. So, um, so figure on... on bunching your animals up on a big mob to move them around more frequently rather than just loosey-goosey over, over a big area, right? Because as we said earlier, and I keep remembering this, is that in, in some of the pasture management, you know, we talk about um, even animal utilization. There's no such thing. Honestly, in the real world, there's no such thing as even animal utilization. That's kind of a little bit of a pet peeve. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because we all know that animals are going to be, they're lazy, right? They're they are going to be going areas where they're closer to water, where they're closer to the mineral, and then they're going to be going back because that's like just, I mean, I've seen animals, they, they will travel, they will travel around, but they tend to favor the areas that are closer to water, closer to the mineral. So, so you could... Um, put mineral out further out so that they're they're utilizing those areas a little bit more. Uh, the other thing is that not just have one single water source where they have to travel half a mile to get to, um, but to have some some uh, PVC or HPV 
H P V C. I think I forget what kind of piping it is, but so the the uh, pipe where you can pipe out the water and have it in a in a in a temporary stock tank. It's mm-hmm. easy to move around. The farm. Yes. Um, so those animals can so that you can get just a few animals. If they're thirsty, they're going to come back and and drink and then go back to where they are. And then you're just moving that around. So it's, you know, what what you what you can do, that kind of thing. So that way that you're getting a bit more even utilization. And and in some case and it's in some cases you can't take half leaf half, but maybe not be afraid to take only a third, right? So when you when you're taking a third, um those plants that are gonna usually those plants are gonna be pretty fast to recovery. The springtime Taking taking a third means that those animals are gonna you're gonna have to come back very very soon because in springtime plants are just growing like crazy. <laughs> they yes. always they're they're growing like like nuts, right? Um, so you know the rule of thumb is that graze fast if if it grows fast graze fast grows slow grows slow graze slow. Um, it, so when you when you're thinking about how much you're going to take, think about how how fast you're gonna you're gonna have to come back. So if you're not taking much, expect to come back much sooner. If you're going to take more, then your recovery is going to be a lot lot longer. Right. So don't be surprised about that. The other thing is that how long how long it, it takes to recover depends on the soil moisture, precipitation, season, you know, um, daily how much. The temperature because cool season plants like like a lot of the, the plants that grow up here um like brown grass sweet grass uh fest a lot of fescues um even the legumes alfalfa clovers saffron those are cool season grasses they tend to like the the cooler end of the end of the temperatures rather than mill you know warm season grasses like millet and corn they tend to like the warmer so they're they're uh, they're hot. They they like the hot temperature. So when those cool season grasses, when it temperatures get hot, they tend to slow down a lot more. So that means that you're going to be coming back to you're going those that recovery period is going to be a bit longer. So right. Um. So it's basically anything that's going to be you know when, when you're taking not taking as much. It's it's uh keeping in mind you have to build that litter bag, especially if you're in a pasture in an area where. Um, the litter bank is not, it's not that great. So, uh, when it's not that great, that means you gotta make sure that you're coming back and, and you're not taking so much mm-hmm. because then those plants are able to co- cover quicker and they put roots down a little bit more, a few more roots down more deeper and, and that kind of thing. So it's just, it's just kind of helping, helping along that way. So it's any yeah. So like I said anything that helps with the litter bank keeps it there, keep the soil cool, help build that biological community below ground, get that soil organic matter built up with all the dead and living roots in the soil, pasture biodiversity, which itself is very important, um, and encourage those plenty of plants to get those deep roots in the soil. So, um, speaking of biodiversity. There was a lot of research done on high legume pastures there for a while, mm-hmm. uh, but I was talking to Alan Williams actually, and he was saying, "Yeah, he's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, he's a cool speaker." Um, but anyway, he was saying that those high legume pastures 
use, they burn through litter really quick. So if you've got, you know, a domination of alfalfa or a lot of, a lot of clover, or a lot of legume in your pasture, you're going to need to leave more litter mm-hmm. if you want to keep soil cover. Because otherwise, uh, they've kind of kicked all of your soil microbes into overdrive. Mm-hmm. So they're really hungry and they're after all of that carbon really aggressively. So they'll burn through your litter a lot faster than a grass pasture will. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's be, it's probably because when you're talking about carbon to nitrogen ratios, legumes are usually a bit less. So optimum carbon to nitrogen ratio is about 20 to 1. Right. And legumes are more like 10 to 15. So it's no wonder microbes are going to be burning through that very quickly because it's high nitrogen now. Mm-hmm. The bacteria in the soil, they love eating that that high nitrogen stuff because it energizes them. It, it, it makes them do their thing, but a lot quicker. So when you have more carbon, that kind of slows those things down. You're able to get more litter. On the other side of the coin, if you got way too much carbon, right? If you got too much, too much... Uh, for instance, straw, right? Mm-hmm. Um, cereal straw is about 80 to 1, one 80 to 1 in the oh. nitrogen ratio, which means that like, I mean, we're kind of talking more in, in field crops, which is fine. It's still, it still yeah. could um, uh, correlates to, to pasture. When you have the high carbon nitrogen ratio, there's way too much carbon for those, for those microbes to feed on. So they're just kind of like, I don't know what to do with this, so I'm not going to eat it. <laughs> That's basically what they're doing. Okay. So when you put in, so in the crop rotations, when you're putting in a legume, like lentils, peas, that kind of thing, lentils, peas, chickpeas, um, vetch, all of a sudden you're encouraging those microbes to, you're giving the food source to those microbes in order to break down that carbon. Mm-hmm. So... It's a balancing act when they get when the carbon and nitrogen ratio. It's it's a real balancing act. So you can have a lot of a lot of legumes, which is which is great because in the animal animal productivity context, it makes cattle fat. It grows uh, feeder steers, stalker steers, heifers like steak, and uh, and of course, especially if you have. A mix of non-bloating legumes, like twenty percent saffron with eighty percent alfalfa, your bloat potential level is like next to zero. So that's good. Um, you know, didn't say the B word, right? So bloating aside, legumes are awesome for um, plant biodiversity and as well as uh, animal productivity. Mm-hmm. But the caveat is it doesn't leave too much behind when we when it comes to litter. Yes. <laughs> so you need some grass. You need a bit of grass. Um, and uh, and speaking about diversity, thing about weeds. My my thing about weeds, and I wish I knew what what that quote was, um, and who it was by. But it was it goes something like weeds are basically plants that have virtues that are undiscovered yet. <laughs> I forget who said who said that or something. Um, maybe you maybe you can find that. But. Yeah, I'll look it up. <laughs> and. Um, Basically, when we're talking about weeds, we're talking about thistle, dandelion, um, all those annoying weeds and stuff like that. So I know that, for instance, the dandelion, I know it's a bit of a pain in the pasture, but cattle will actually go after it. And I've seen this happen. I've actually seen this myself, so I'm not bullshitting here. 
Um, <laughs> I walked out in the pasture and I, I literally saw a clump of dandelion. The surrounding grasses were untouched. And this dandelion was chomped down, no kidding, to only an inch left oh, man. of that stuff. And the grass around it was ignored, right? Cows mm-hmm. always eat, you expect cows to eat grass. Not always. Cows love the dandelion. And the reason that these cows that I looked at, they they're, had suckling calves. So they're, they're mama cows with, with calf on them. The reason why is because there's, I think there's a bit of calcium and magnesium in, in the, the plants that are, that are the other plants mm-hmm. in those other grasses. So there was something in there that the cows really liked and the, and, uh, that mineral and, the, and because we know that, uh, dandelion has a really deep taproot, like cannabis. So, so it brings up a lot of nutrients in, in the plant itself and then it's in the cows that love it, but it, you know, when they, when they decompose, it leaves that behind. So neat. Biodiversity, and of course, when I talk about rangeland, I mean, there's umpteen different plants. I've talked about all those different species and uh, <laughs> that I had to memorize. And uh, you might think, oh, poor you. No, <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> it nice. was fun. So it was good. Yeah, so it was like every, all these different forms and that. So anyway, going back to um, to the roots, the root of the problem, <laughs> intended. There we go. <laughs> Doing the opposite, so doing, doing the opposite of, of, of that, that management that I mentioned, um, going off, going, coming back from going off that tangent there, um, it means having those very shallow roots, and which means when you have shallow roots, it means you have short-growing plants above. Well, let's, let's turn it around here. If you see short-growing plants above, that usually means the roots are kind of short below, and it's usually for grasses, right? Because you see long grasses that... You know, if they're kept short, the, the roots are going to be short. doesn't always mean um, when there's plants that are short above. It depends It depends on the plants, too, because if they're, if, if you catch the plant, if you catch the plant, they're, they've just been cut, like, recently, and they've already been pretty tall. Touches are, there's a really nice, beautiful, deep roots below ground. So, but that's just the, the uh the rule of thumb. So so usually those pots are less resilient to drought. Um and there's you get li- little to no soil organic matter to act as a sponge to soak up water, keep it there long after the time we're supposed to get rains, but um let's see. I think I'm I'm gonna jump off that more resilient to drought question because I think a lot of drought proofing practices and correct me if I'm wrong but a lot of drought proofing practices also go the other way and help with flood resistance too right oh yes definitely as I know we had the opposite problem in some areas of the piece Mm -hmm. here last year we had flood we had flooding we had just so much rain yeah no that's absolutely right yeah because it's um when, when you have that litter, it always goes back to the litter problem. <laughs> it's not a problem; it's a good problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is this is really cool because it, the the thing about litter is when it rains, the litter is protecting the soil so that when it rains, because these these raindrops are coming down pretty darn hard. Like it basically, when you think about how rain comes to, comes down to the soil, it's because the raindrops are being forced to the center of the earth, right? Because that's that's the center of the earth is where everything is being 
push down, but enough so that we're, you know, we, we've, we're so used to it because we don't really notice that this is gravity. Um, but, you know, the, those raindrops are being forced so hard toward the center of the earth, toward the ground, that when they're hitting bare soil, they're spurting up stuff. They're mm-hmm. spurting up stuff from the plants into the, into the air. That kind of thing. So when litter, the litter is protecting that soil so that water drops hit the litter, but then the, the water that's in those drops is trickling slowly down to the soil surface. Very gentle. So it's, it's turns a hard raindrop that's going like that to, you can't hear it, which is, which is good because that, that's, that's the whole idea. <laughs> So the water is trickling gently down into the soil, and then, you know, that, that, that as, as we mentioned, that soil organic matter is acting as a sponge. Now, that's, something has to do with that sponge, right? When, when the sponge gets wet, what happens? It starts dripping out water, mm-hmm. right? When it's, when it's absolutely soaked, when it's saturated. And so when it's saturated, it's also slowly, gently letting down water into the soil depths. Into the A, into the A layer, into the B layer, you know that that kind of thing of the, of the soil profile. And that way, when it catches that water, the water is is staying in the soil. It's not being kept on top. That's where you get the flooding issues. Is when it's kept on top because there's nothing to soak that water in, mm-hmm. right? So. When there's when you don't have that that organic mat you know matter to soak it up, um, a lot of that water is just going to be you know you see you see it out in the fields you see it out in the, in the crop fields where there's just there's just the soil you know okay before I get into that the other thing is is about the soil profile itself you know whether it's a columnar structure or whether it's it's a platy um, so columnar let's say vertical. Um, platy is horizontal, so it's when you get the, the columnar, it means that the water is more likely to trickle down. Whereas it's, if it's uh, platy, if it's a packed, you know, compacted platy, the water is a lot harder to get down to the soil depths because it has to all of a sudden go through these plates. It's like stacking up on plates versus stacking cups. And we see that a lot up here because we've got some really heavy clay so- yeah. soils, so sometimes you'll see the water. There is a compaction layer, so the water's coming down, hitting that compaction layer, and leaving. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, and you get that that compaction. You know that that's the other thing, is it? And then you know, and the other thing is in, in the fields. You know, it's get a lot of tillage. That that soil is, is so fine that it's it's so so much way 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 too much um, surface surface area for for that water to get into. Whereas if, if the, the, the glues of, of uh, the fungi, you know, you get the, the guamelin um, from, from the hyphae. <laughs> Saying these buzzwords of, oh, it makes me smile, yeah. of, these, uh, of this fungi. Um, and then that means that the water is a bit less effort to trickle down into the swell. Mm-hmm. I will make the so, note. Guamelin is, an, is a, basically a byproduct of uh, fungal branches um, and it, it helps glue soil together into aggregates and there's a whole that's a whole nother podcast but <laughs> that is I a did, whole nother podcast i did yeah. want to make the note just so people know yeah 
So anyway, so when you get when you get all of that, all of a sudden your land is flooding is is now now kind of a thing where you don't really have to worry about it. Now, when you talk when we think about wetlands, I mean wetlands are, are a completely different story. We're just talking about the land itself, the uplands. Mm-hmm. That that's where catches that, that heavy downfall and it just keeps it in, in the swell. So that um, trickles down into the soil and it's you know it's it feeds the groundwater aquifers and all in on that context and all that soil so um so yeah, um, physics and, and that kind of stuff it really helps with the with the flooding that so it's very very fascinating stuff so awesome yeah <laughs> that will uh, wrap up this this episode um, like we said at the end of the last episode, if you would like some more resources on drought management, uh, pasture resiliency, pasture rejuvenation, any of that sort of stuff, feel free to reach out to Battle River Research Group or uh, Peace Country Beef and Forage Association. We'd be happy to talk to you. That's our that's our whole purpose is to uh, help producers out. So, uh, with that, thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening!